Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Dacre Stoker at Anoka County Library, Northtown. Dacre Stoker is the great-grandnephew of renowned Irish novelist Bram Stoker, the mind behind the genre-defining classic, Dracula. He is also manager of his famous ancestor's estate and an internationally recognized expert on all things Dracula. In 2009, Dacre turned his eye to fiction and a sequel more than 110 years in the making. Aptly titled Dracula the Undead, this continuation of the original story is built upon Bram Stoker's own handwritten notes. More than 20 publishers around the world optioned this unique work of fiction, which Publishers Weekly lauded as a well-needed shot of fresh blood from the Dracula mythos. In the same vein, pun intended, Dacre plumbed his great-grand-uncle's personal notes and life story to craft a 2017 prequel to the 1897 masterpiece. Dracul, co-authored with J.D. Barker, features none other than Bram Stoker himself as a central protagonist. Library Journal praised Dracul as a strong pick for fans of classic gothic tales, but also good for anyone who appreciates gripping historical novels. Thank you. Uh, I'm gonna take you on a journey, folks. a little bit behind the scenes of my great-granduncle's work, Dracula, and then how I took some of that information, 10 years in the making, to write Dracul with J.D. Barker. Because if you know, you're going to try to fill, or as I'm trying to do, fill some awful big shoes, or even just get one toe in one of Bram's shoes, you've got to do your research. And you've got to make sure that uh, you under, you under, I understood Bram. I understood his family, because they're all in the story. Uh, as much as I love you know, the fans, there's a lot of critics out there that will love to point out if you got something a little bit wrong. Because I cannot believe, in all the years I've been doing this, how many people I've met that have said, I, I haven't read Dracula once. I've read it many times, once a year for so many years. So many people are, are sort of into what Bram has created that makes it a sort of a daunting experience for me to go and put my two cents worth into it. And that, that's really what I'm doing. I'm not trying to become Bram Stoker. I've let him change the world. I'm gonna to try to help you folks and others understand a little more about Bram. Because what I've understood is many people now know Dracula. I mean, everywhere I've gone around the world, I think I've met one or two taxi drivers in weird places that haven't heard of Dracula. But a lot of people haven't heard of Bram yet. So I'm gonna take you on that journey tonight. We're very lucky um, that 
we become the number one best-selling hardcover horror in the UK last year, which is like right in Bram's territory. And the Horror Writers Association, which JD and I are members of, um, we didn't win a Bram Stoker Award, but we were one of the top five books. So we're, we're still striving to, to, to win one of those coveted awards. Um, just a little bit more about me, and I won't repeat things. You see Dracula the Undead, that's what started myself changing from being a teacher and athletics coach. I taught school in Canada and in South Carolina and coached all the way at the Olympic Games in 88 in Seoul, but I've really put all that energy now into understanding Bram and, and bringing Bram to the rest of the world. In the process uh, of, of writing this book, I actually found really gold. Bram has two great-grandsons still alive, and they're retired chartered accountants, and, and they really don't have too much interest, really, in horror. And, and just to sort of put this in perspective, Dracula didn't become a classic till 1962, when Oxford University deemed it a classic, and that's, and that's when his great-grandson sort of puffed up their chest a little bit. But they really didn't have much creativity, so they've got all these cool things in boxes. And they said, Dacre, you go take a look, you do something with this. So that's a journal I actually found of Brahms, which was incredible. To find something he wrote as a young man living in Dublin while he was still a student, and then while he was working in Dublin Castle, and then when he got the job with Henry Irving and he moved off to London. That's, I mean, that's a really important part of his life. But the kicker is, to date, we've only found one journal. And I know he's written more. But I also have tracked a lot of his movements. There were fires in the Lyceum Theater, the houses that the Stokers had lived in. You know, they've moved on a lot. His wife dumped out a lot of stuff. Places were bombed during, during World War II. So I'm, they, they could be sitting in yard sales somewhere, but they could also just be gone. We also know he kept the diary because he mentioned that in the one book that was a huge seller while he was alive called Personal Reminiscence of Henry Irving. And he mentioned, in my journal, London is in view. Because when he moved from Dublin, London was a much freer society, even though Victorian England was not all that free. They were pent up with all kinds of anxieties and issues, but Dublin was worse. So here he was to go off to be free and work in the theater, which was his dream, but also start writing. And that diary is still elusive. We don't know where that one is yet. Um, anybody ever watched any of the Mysteries at the Museum series on Travel Channel? It's pretty good. Um, Don Wildman is a great guy, a wonderful gentleman, but we, we did a series a couple of years ago, and, it's, and it keeps popping up this time of the year. But we actually went to Romania and looked into the myth, the vampire myth in Vlad Dracula. And this is a good one also called Secrets of the Dead. I did a segment uh, in, in this video, which you'll see a clip of. It's on PBS, you can get it for free if you go into PBS, Secrets of the Dead, and they look at deviant burials. And then they try to figure out from the burial, when they find these bones and the head taken off and put between the legs or a sigh or a stake in, through, the, through the bones, what does that mean? What, they, what was going on during those days? So Vampire Legends are good, we'll see a couple of clips from this. Uh, now I apologize, this speaker is not amazing, so we have to listen really close to this next clip right now, because this is what gets us in the mood for tonight, okay? This is a film clip from a really fun um, uh, film festival that I got invited to by Audrey Hepburn's son, Sean Farrar. And they put on a wonderful festival, and this one they invited me because they were, they were asking me to come. They were showing old vampire movies, and they're also showing old Monty Pythons. So during a week, I'd go to a, a Monty Python movie, you know, The Life of Brian, with oh, always look at the bright side, and then Bela Lugosi. You know. So it was, it was quite a you know, cross-section. Um, but I, I love this because it sort of gets the mood going of um, how we want to feel to get this kind of show going tonight. So here we go. Sacred blood of 
founded nations hundreds of years before you were born. Your armies were defeated. You tortured and impaled thousands of people. I was betrayed. Look what your God has done to me. No, your war with God is over. You must pay for your crimes. That last scene with Gary Oldman dressed in that sort of rubbery bat-looking thing is, is, is quite an interesting scene. I've got to know the screenwriter very well, Jim Hart. We've done presentations together where I talk about Bram writing the novel. He talks about why and how he adapted Bram's novel into a love story. That was the 1992 Francis Ford Coppola version, and it was quite an important version because they won a couple of Academy Awards, but it also sort of deviated, and the purists, some purists hated it because it did add many elements to something Bram didn't include. One was that line at the very end, look what your God has done to me. I was betrayed, look what your God has done to me. That wasn't a Bram Stoker line, it's a good line. But it fitted in with what Jim Hart wanted to do, because this movie really connected Vlad the Impaler to the Dracula role, more so than Bram Stoker did. Bram simply borrowed the name from Two books, Dracula. He never called his guy Vlad at all, and he never, he didn't do much connection. I'll show you the connection that he did, but this one really connected the two, and then many others have. And the other cool thing about that scene was, originally there was going to be a big, big flapping wings bat, and Francis Ford Coppola, he was, he was sold on it. And Jim Hart said, no, there can't, there can't be that. We've got we to have something different, and they compromised and had that metamorphosized looking bat. And so what they did though, was they did not have a rehearsal with Gary Oldman wearing that costume and Anthony Hopkins and the others when they walked in with that cross to repel Dracula, who was sort of having his way with, with Mina, the look on their face was sheer horror because they had not seen that costume. So you can YouTube it and take a look at their faces and you'll see sort of what, they, what it looks like. Um, popular culture has certainly had their way with, with, with Bram's work. Now again, he did not invent the vampire but he did certainly connect Dracula to the vampire myth, and, and it's gone in many, many directions from here. I, I won't touch on all of them, but, but some are humorous, some are a little more serious, uh, obviously adult beverages. I think the funny one is somebody who's very opportunistic with, with a license plate. There's a vehicle, the Chevrolet Impala, and, and, and somebody played with Vlad the Impala, which, which is great. And then of course, Bela Lugosi's career seriously helped the book, when the, when the film, excuse me, when the, when the stage plays came out in the 20s, Bram, Bram died in 1912, the book was a good seller, but it really vaulted forward big time when, when the stage plays came on in the 20s and then the movies later on. Even though he, he played on stage a lot, he, he, he didn't, he, didn't, he was in the 31 Todd Browning Dracula, but he didn't play in many others. It was Christopher Lee that really carried the torch with, with many, many different um, Dracula movies. And then of course even children, and this today, this kind of gets me. Like that in Sesame Street, you know, what, what are we telling our children? You know, like vampires, and of course, Sesame Street did a great job. Count the count. And one of the cool superstitions about vampires that Bram uncovered is that they're supposed to be OCD and they like to count everything. And so if you wanted to slow down a vampire from a suspected grave, you throw down a bunch of rice or a bunch of little rocks because if he was to come out of that grave, he's got to count them all before he can get on to go suck anybody's blood. So, so they did a good job, somewhat authentic job, with count the count. 
Now, as JD and I sat down to start writing this story, Dracul, I said, I said JD, we're, we're going to get roasted if we don't do this well. And I had 10 years of Bram Stoker experience. I said, if we're going to write a prequel, we've got to first understand Bram and his writing of Dracula. So one thing JD did, JD Barker, was he got Dracula and Audible, got on his headphones, and every day for a month when he'd go for his jog or his walk with his dog, he was getting into the cadence of Bram's writing. I was teaching him all this other stuff. And this is just some, you know, I love cover art, but it's also some interesting stats about the book itself. Over a thousand editions in 30 languages, never out of print since it was published in 1897. It's public domain in 62 when it became a classic. Over 700 movie citations. That's from a professor at Georgia Tech University who wrote a whole book on Dracula and visual media. And he was second only to Sherlock Holmes in a literary character being adapted into movies and then a thousand comic book and stage adaptations. And, and here's just some first editions from around the world. Quick audience participation question. This is the very first one that came out in, in London. Any idea why that yellow cover? I, I love looking at these, even with our covers, and wonder why does somebody think that's going to sell? Obviously, that's what they're doing it for. Anybody, anybody know why in the Victorian era, 1897, that would you know, sort of propel you to think this is a vampire novel? It's, it's the color of the degeneration, decomposing of the body. <clears throat> when there was a bruise and the blood would break down, it would go sort of that you know, dark red color and it would, go, it would go through. And yellow was kind of one of these kind of grotesque colors, the yellow and the red. So obviously they didn't have a whole lot of amazing artistic abilities in those days, but yellow gave that, gave that image. So, Here's my bit on, on Bram. I've got a number of slides kind of going into his life, because that's, that's important. He is a central character in Dracul. And I've got to make sure that I depict him right along with his brothers and sisters who are in the novel. So he was born in 1847 in just outside of Dublin, Ireland, in a very difficult time called Black 47. They were just getting over cholera epidemics, potato famine. And to make matters worse, Bram, Bram was one of seven kids, and he was the only one that was so sick they didn't expect him to live. So for seven years, he had a very mysterious illness, but he was sort of sequestered on the top floor of his little house in Clontarf, and then they moved to Artane two and a half years later, and he was really sort of an outcast in the family. So he really lived, as I say, lived in his head. He developed an incredible sense of imagination. His nanny and his mom told him lots of stories before he could read. He ended up getting tutored and then got fairly accelerated in tutoring so he could get off to a decent school, and he qualified to get into Trinity University, and he did quite well there. But imagine this as, as a young boy, very sick himself, um, ends up getting bloodlet by one of his uncles. And that's pretty horrifying when, when you think of seeing a lot of death and dying going on around you, and you're sick yourself, and as he wrote in Personal Reminiscence to Henry Irving, sometimes he, he didn't know if he could draw his next breath. Now, I think, for the record, his actual illness was respiratory allergies and asthma. There's still some of that in the family. And when he moved inshore away from the musty, mildewy uh, Clontarf area, you know the kind of beds they were sleeping on? It was straw with linen on top. So here's a kid with allergies sleeping on the things that make you allergic. And I looked into some details about other illnesses at the time, rheumatic fever, scarlet fever. He would never have recovered from that to become the champion athlete that he was. So asthma you grow out of, and asthma you, you didn't have all the fancy medicine, obviously we do. 
But I think that's what it was. But that's very scary when you think of how difficult it is going through an asthma attack and not knowing if you're going to die. However, he did grow out of this, and he went off to Trinity University, and he became a champion athlete. You'll see some trophies in another slide. And, I, and I've seen, as a teacher, I've seen a number of young men and women kind of come into their own confidence with sports and then become leaders in their field, both academics and in other areas. Bram was head of the Philosophical Society, the Historical Society. He was in debating. He was in theater. So he was a really an all-round kind of guy. But deep inside him, I think he was a conflicted guy. Because as you all know, when you kind of study human brain and behavior, that we've got sort of more analytical side and more creative side. And those two sides in Bram's life were in conflict. Because the creative side of him, he would go off to, with his dad to the theater, and they loved to critique theater. In those days, it wasn't very refined. But the other side of Bram, he was, got a master's in mathematics and was very organized and detail-oriented, which helped him when he had to go to Dublin Castle to get a job. His dad retired after 47 years working in Dublin Castle. This is the British seat of, of, of government. And so the other kids in the Stoker family were all being schooled. Bram was being schooled and doing athletics and working to, to make money for the family. Dad had a decent pension. But Bram got this job in Petty Sessions, which is a very low-level um, clerk-type position. But he did it very well, even though it was boring as all get-out. But he would actually kind of sneak away, and he went to the newspaper that Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu was the editor of. He's the writer of Carmilla. And he wrote theatrical reviews anonymously, because he didn't want his dad to know, because his dad kind of slapped him down and said, no theater. You know, stay away from the theater. It's good for entertainment, but no, no way for a living. So there was this conflict in Bram with Bram and his dad. He actually took the job with Henry Irving to become his, his manager and moved to London only when his father and mother and two sisters moved to Central Europe, the continent, so the girls could get better educated in the arts. So it was like once dad moved away, Bram had some freedom. And he was like, King, stuff you, dad. And he went off to London and proved his father wrong because they turned around that Lyceum Theater to the point where all the hot swells were going, the royalties were going, and Henry Irving was the first actor ever knighted because of all the hard work Bram did to make, make it a, a better place and everybody learn their lines, do the set designs properly, behave properly on and off the stage. One other thing that was really very important in Bram's life, I mentioned these stories that uh, his mom told him. And also, J.D. and I found out what these stories were. And we actually incorporated one of these stories in our novel. It was actually going to be two of them, but one had to be cut out because of length. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. But the Irish had all kinds of horrifying folklore and mythology. It wasn't all lucky charms and leprechauns, folks. If you look into Irish mythology, they've got their own vampires and banshees and kind of horrible stuff. They're a, they're a, a culture of storytellers like you would not believe. It was fantastic. And Bram was one of those. And he heard all these things about this. So when he later on went to the London Library and the Whitby Library and read about vampires in, e in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, it all sort of came back together again. That's why I say it's a perfect storm. Some of his own personal experiences, some of the studying that he did, it all kind of matched up later on in his life. Now, one of these that really hit home that unfortunately got edited out of our story is what we call the Charlotte Stoker cholera story. And it's really horrifying. Bram's mom told him this story that years later, he asked her to mail to him. So she got a typewriter when she was in France. 
and typed the whole story up, sent it to Brehm. Lucky thing, because now we have a record of it. And we know for sure that that's where it came from. Because he used this story in one of the first books that he wrote. This is going to be sickening, but a series of horror children's stories <laughs> called Under the Sunset. And this is the story that he put in to this thing called the Invisible Giant. So we, now, we know a lot about germ theory, but still things like Ebola. And I live in the south, not far from Atlanta. And four summers ago, some healthcare workers came from helping people in Africa with Ebola, and it scared the heck out of Emory University even four years ago. What's going on? How can we all be safe? People were, were paranoid. Well, that same thing was going on with cholera, and Charlotte Stoker was 14 years old when it hit her part of uh, Sligo, Western Ireland, and she tells this story, and I'll just give you a, a little teeny piece of it, but she talks about her neighbor, and her neighbor, the, the husband, dealt with his wife who was sick and, and you know the people would come to the doors to take out the dead. They were just dying. Nobody knew what was causing this illness. They didn't, they didn't know it was obviously human waste in the water. And as soon as somebody was infected, was put into the grave and the body decomposed or any of the fluids from these people got into you, you're gone sometimes 24, 36 hours. So the first round of people that were dying were all the medical people. The next were the religious people. They were all the ones handling the bodies. They, they didn't have any of the gloves and any of the stuff we have. And so what was happening in sort of the second round of the illnesses that Charlotte was, was mentioning here was that the husband took her wife off to the hospital. She was complaining of pain, and he wrapped a big scarf, red scarf, around her stomach to brought her off the hospital and, and put her in the hospital. Then he went off to work. At the end of the day, he came back to look for her. And of course, the people in the hospital were not doctors. They were street people who were trying to care for these people, and they were just giving them all kinds of drugs like laudanum and so on to help ease the pain, the suffering for the last few hours of their life. And this man came back from his work looking for his wife. Oh no, she's gone. Where's she gone? No, she didn't make it. Well, where is she? Well, there was a big hole at the end of town. They weren't doing proper burials. So they'd dig a hole, put bodies in, pour some lime in, dirt, bodies, lime, dirt, just these mass graves. And he went to sort of see where his wife was and he saw the red scarf and he went to pay his last respects to her and she moved. So he helped take some of the bodies off and, and helped her come out of the grave. She was very much alive. She was sick. It wasn't the cholera. It was something else that made her sick that day, but she was misdiagnosed and thrown in the grave with all the others. And she came back, a neighbor of Charlotte Blake, Mrs. soon to be Mrs. Stoker later in her life, and so that story was told to Bram and made such an impression on him that he asked his mom to send it to him. So I can imagine if it had that much of an impact on young Bram that I'm sure the thought crossed his little mind when he was sick for seven years and being bloodlet and what would happen to him if he was buried prematurely and have to drag himself out of the grave. A little spot in his brain I'm sure was somewhat traumatized and then years later when he starts researching superstition of bodies coming out of the graves, it all comes together in this perfect storm. So the writing of the story now, let's focus on that for a moment because that's very Bram-esque. He writes the story in the epistolary style. I didn't do that with Ian Holt with my first book, but we certainly did with the second one because we took a lot of heat for not doing it. Uh, you know, carrying on the tradition in a style that Bram didn't use. It's not an easy way to write a book. Bram certainly did. Series of memos. Jonathan Harker writes a lot of memos to, to Mina. Funnily enough, in Bram's journal and his notes, he does the same. Memo to self. Mem. 
some of the books in the libraries I saw Mem that Bram had written in. So that's very Bram. Newspaper articles in Dracula, Bram made a lot of money even when he was a theater manager writing newspaper articles. This is something he was comfortable doing for real. He actually inserted real situations into the novel. Whitby, England, which is right here in the Yorkshire coast, he took one holiday there and he got so impressed with it that he set chapter six, seven, and eight and he utilized actual things that went on there. I, I found out that Bram loved to go to the Coast Guard and to the fishermen in the towns where he went on holidays and would hang out with them and say, hey, come on, tell me some stories. And they would get some, of the, some stories and then he would use those and modify them into his stories. Well, that had not only gave him good material, but it made the stories feel realistic. And so people reading these horror stories were sort of led to believe and we say, the willful suspension of disbelief is what he was shooting for, make people feel that this horror story, this supernatural story, had an element of realism to it, which was very, very effective. I, will, I will, won't do too many slides on this, but Cruden Bay, Scotland, recently a, a guy that I've got to know, Mike Shepard, and I wrote the introduction to his book. This is fairly new, it was two years old. Mike found out that Bram spent 13 summers there. Most of the biographies have only said, oh, he spent two or three summers, but Mike has details and actual facts proving he was there 13 times. This is the castle in Cruden Bay, Scotland. When Bram was there, it looked like that. You go back today, it doesn't have a roof on it, which is sort of a British thing. You take the roof off, you don't have to pay the taxes. And so if the family runs out of money, these old estates, the roof comes off, it stays there as a ruin, all the insides get gutted, and, and the family takes the, all the furnishings out. But when you get to look on the inside of this, you actually see that right in the middle of Slane's castle is an octagonal room. And this octagonal room, <laughs> Bram put into Castle Dracula, which is up in the northern Transylvania. If you, if you go back to look at chapter one, when Jonathan Harker walks in, the count actually brings his suitcases and walks in and actually enters and goes into octagonal room that has no windows to the outside. That's exactly in this place right here. Here's another book that, one of the books that gave Bram great insight. It's called Land Beyond the Forest by Emily Gerard. Interestingly enough, Bram was introduced to Emily Gerard, the Scottish writer, by Mark Twain. Bram and Mark Twain were good friends in Chelsea. Both of them had, a, had sort of a bond and interest in spiritualism. He introduced Emily Gerard to Bram, who at that time was living in um, uh, northern Transylvania, married to a Polish guy who was in the Austrian-Hungarian uh, army, and she had a big interest in spiritualism and also supernatural, and so she wrote this book and one essay in particular that Bram took most of his notes on all about vampires and superstitions in Transylvania. Bram also inserted a lot of technology into his, uh, into his book. Now to get the full effect of this, you've got to then go back to the end of the century where there was, there were change was, was not being embraced very well in British society. This, this was the Victorian era. People were scared to death of electricity being introduced and replacing the gas lights. Bram Stoker was a very forward-thinking guy. He was very interested in trying to get electric lights brought into Lyceum Theatre. They weren't the first to do it. It certainly wasn't the last. But Bram himself touched on every one of these pieces of technology or fringe science in Dracula. I won't go into all of them, but I will ask the group this. Anybody know where this one technology was used in the novel? A phonograph with a wax cylinder. It's kind of like recording something on your iPhone. Anybody know where that 
was used in Dracula? Excuse me? Was it Seward? Yes. Dr. Seward was keeping his notes there. And he was compiling the notes from the Band of Heroes. And it's really very much lined up with the typewriter because Mina Harker, the modern woman Mina was, Mina's a little bit of Bram's mom and his sister. She knew how to type. And she was the one correlating all the notes that came off of Seward's wax cylinder. So she was playing that role. And, and funnily enough, nowadays, it's kind of funny when you think Bram Stoker had Van Helsing say, oh, she's wonderful. She has a man's brain. <laughs> she was a new woman. But you know, Bram actually realized his mother was a great social activist, and, and, and uh, his sister was a real kick-ass as well. But he also interest, you know, physiognomy was how Bram described faces. This is a science of uh, Cesar Lombroso, who said, the physical characteristics of somebody's face will tell you their personality. Bram was also a painter. He was a founding member of the Dublin Painting and Sketching Club. So when you look at something Bram writes, you'll see he writes things sometimes very verbose because he's writing with the eye of a painter and also describing facial features, especially Dracula, as a criminal type looking person because of this idea of physiognomy. So now I bring you probably one of the coolest pages in Bram's notes. He's got a note, notes sitting in the Rosenbach Museum. And this is the one page where he makes a major change in one thing. And it's right here. This is where he invents the name Dracula. Up until this page, and I believe he did this either when he went to Whitby in 1890, but right at the beginning, he'd already written some notes. And he had a vampire called Wampir, which is actually what the Austrians would refer to as a vampire as. Doesn't quite have the same ring as Dracula, does it? But he did his research, and I'll show you where in a little while. But then he writes Dracula here, and then here, and then here. And then with great confidence, sticks his pen in the inkwell. You can see it's fresh ink. Count Dracula underlines it. Folks, this is the genesis page of a character the world has come to know. And that's Dracula. And then if you look down here, you'll see Seward, Lucy Westerna, Mad patient, didn't have a name at that time. He was called Flyman. I don't know when Renfield came along. The lawyer was John Hawkins, then Peter Hawkins, living in Exeter. His clerk, Jonathan Harker, Wilhelmina Murray. So these are all, and then there's one other thing that's always got me, and that's Detective Cotford. Anybody here actually read Dracula the Undead? If, if you've read it, you'll understand where Cotford came from. Bram originally planned to have a detective in his novel. And I don't have time to go into this in detail, but it's great if you're in a book club or if you're involved with a group of people who like to sit around and chat about these things. But when you consider all the people dying in the novel Dracula, and I guarantee you, more of them die by other causes than Count Dracula, you wonder, Bram was onto something, especially because he was a legal clerk. And later on, he was, he was promoted to be inspector of all clerks all over Ireland. And he had a legal mind. He was you know, called to the bar to be, become a lawyer, and he chose not to. So it's not like he had disrespect for the law, but he had a, a, a detective lined up. With all those deaths, why no detective? And here's my theory, just to cut this part short. He was writing the novel during the Jack the Ripper murders. And that whole concept that the police couldn't save anybody in fancy Victorian England with this Ripper running loose, killing people grotesquely. I think Bram was sensitive to people in his, his potential readers. He was, he was the theater manager. He knew what would get people into their seats. He knew what would scare people. He knew, he was very aware of that stuff. 
So if he could not, if he could sense that the police couldn't save people from the Ripper, there's no way a policeman's going to do the same thing with Dracula. You've got to put that in the hands of a few good men and one strong woman to keep them all together, which is essentially the way it's been described. Mina was the glue. Without Mina, all these guys, who were smart guys, but they couldn't pull it together. That's, that's the woman. One other quick thing. Mem, remember I told you Bram wrote Mems, memos? Right here in pencil, Mem, secret room, colored like blood. Well, I won't, won't go into all this. I'll go into a little bit later, but there is a second version of Dracula that was sold to Sweden and then Iceland, and it's been published as Powers of Darkness. And it's a very different story than the Dracula that we all know. It's an early version that ended up being rejected by Archibald Constable and Bram had to refine it. And one reason is because the Jack the Ripper murders were scaring the heck out of everybody. That I think was the first one with the secret room colored like blood with human sacrifice in the bottom of Castle Dracula by ape-like creatures was a little too gruesome for the day. Not too gruesome for the Swedes and the Icelandic people, though, because <laughs> they loved it for whatever reason. And it's been translated by a friend of mine back into English, and I wrote the intro to it called Powers of Darkness. But let's get into this book. All right, so here's hardcover, paperback, and I'm going to show you a trailer for it, because I got a friend in Whitby, England, that wrote a, uh, created a trailer for, um, for our book. JD and I played the role of literary forensic detectives. Um, these are the keynotes. If, if you, you, you're welcome to take a picture of this if you're into all this Dracula stuff, because if you want to research Dracula, you can find most of these things, except for the great-grandsons, online. Okay? And this is, these are the most important documents that you would need to dig up. The notes for Dracula, 125 pages of notes that are at the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. They've actually been published. And I highly recommend to libraries that you look into buying that. It's called Notes for Dracula. Um, it's, it's expensive and hardback, but I think in soft cover it's maybe 35 bucks. And a new edition is coming out any week now that, again, that I wrote an intro to. The original Dracula preface, that's the one from the Icelandic edition. I'm going to read parts of it to you in a moment. The Charlotte Stoker cholera story uh, I just told you about. The missing 101 pages. I will give you some information on that. That's actually owned, the whole typescript is owned by the Paul Allen estate. He died last year, but they make it available for authors to look at. And it was critical for J.D. and I to look at this, because we needed to see where Bram originally intended to start his novel. If we're going to write a prequel, we better make sure whatever we write dovetails nicely with what the original was. And I'll give you some insight into that. His Lost Journal, um, it's also available for sale, and it's a good library book. That's the one I found. The Jane Stoddard interview is very interesting. It's the one and only interview that anyone's ever found that Bram gave three months after the book came out. I'm publishing it in a, a, a uh, it's coming, actually, it's coming out in a few days in England but sort of a stoker on stoker, the notes for all, everything I'm talking about. And it's the full things in there. I'm going to give you a little snippet of it. And then I think you're going to have to do like I do. If you ever find his great-grandsons, you've got to give one wine and one whiskey, and then they open up a little bit. And that chartered account in them just kind of loosens up, and we get some good insight. Because funnily enough, they were raised by their grandfather, which was Bram's son, because their dad died in World War II. So when I've got to go to them and extract information, it's like a, only a generation away from Bram. So it's pretty neat to have those guys available. So we are connecting the dots using new information and drawing conclusions, searching for the truth from what other people have found, but they didn't put it together in quite the same way that J.D. Barker and I did 
to write Dracul. Now the original preface. This original story was grotesque, more sexual, and very realistic. And I'm going to read this to you and see if you get the same feeling I did when I told it to JD for the first time. I am, this is Bram's writing now. I am quite convinced there's no doubt whatever that the events here described really took place. However unbelievable and incomprehensible they might appear at first sight. And I am further convinced they must always remain to some extent incomprehensible. Although continuing research in psychology and natural sciences may, in years to come, give logical explanations of such strange happenings which at present neither scientists nor the secret police can understand. There's a lot of Bram in there, a lot of the science and a lot of the, the secret police. That's a heck of a long run-on sentence, but that's Bram telling us a lot right there. All the people who have willingly or unwillingly played a part in this remarkable story are known generally and well-respected. Both Jonathan Harker and his wife, who is a woman of character, and Dr. Seward are my friends and have been so for many years, and I have never doubted they were telling the truth. It goes on from another page, very similar, mentions the truth, reality, and it also mentions that the murders are very similar to the ones created by Jack the Ripper, putting this right at the same time when those were going on. And that's, again, real murders going on. This is one of the things that tilted things in our direction when you're saying, I believe this story is real. And here's the rest of it. Because I already told you about his mysterious illness and what I really believed it to be, but the author in me came out with J.D. Barker when we were sitting around going, okay, there's these hints of it's real. And I'm thinking, how did Bram recover to become a champion athlete? As I mentioned, my Olympic background, I saw a lot of human growth, uh, hormone use and steroid use, and I thought, how could Bram just vault from being an invalid at seven to being a champion athlete and winning trophies like this? So as we do, as writers do, and if there's ever any in the room here, it always comes to you, what if? What about? What if he got some supernatural blood? What, ha what happens if he got a little interaction with some vampire? And as we know, those give you the power of 20 men. Maybe that's how he recovered, to be the tallest in his, in his family, the strongest guy winning all these awards. So that was our premise, that what if Dracula was real? And as JD and I just quizzed back and forth and pushed each other, and it was like, Okay, well, what would he have done? He can't go to Metropolitan Police or Scotland Yard and say, well, there's vampires about. They would throw him in a insane asylum. He would do what Bram Stoker does, writes a story about it to warn the world. That's the right thing to do. Warn the world that's coming, but put it in a form of fiction, kind of slide it in under the radar. And that's where our whole, our whole idea of, of Dracul came from. So then I proceeded on that premise, and I started finding things like the actual treaties that one of his uncles wrote about bloodletting. And I looked into this and I realized there's a really good chance that Bram's young Bram was bloodlet. And they did it in those days by leeching and cutting. And I looked into this treatise and what William Stoker said that it wasn't very scientific about how much blood you took out. You basically took out enough blood for the person to pass out. And then you give him to rehydrate, unlike us going to the Red Cross and getting some orange juice, you rehydrate with claret, which is red wine, and oil. Apparently the alcohol is going to kill anything that's left. It's also going to make you very drunk, especially as a little kid who's dehydrated. So I imagine the reality side of this, as we kind of look in the, the fantasy side, that young Bram is horrified every now and then when somebody comes to cut him or leech him, and he's drunk as this is happening, and he's imagining maybe buried prematurely and so on. So this trauma, I believe, was very deep. 
And that's what, has, you know, that's what we used to bring out in this story. R real life situations of, of leeching and so on. We use this treatise to help us understand how to write that. Here's the family. Meet the Stokers. <laughs> this is young Bram when he recovered from his illness. This is his sister, a little bit older obviously, but they were very close. She was older than him. And, and I saw letters back and forth to help explain how, I, how, how do I write about their relationship if I don't know, but I've seen the letters between them. This is Thornley Stoker, who's the oldest in the family. He was actually knighted as a very famous doctor. You'll see him shortly. And then what is really strange, who, el who else has read the book other than you, sir? Okay. This is Ellen Crone. This is a real picture of Ellen Crone. And, and there's a re weird reason why the picture doesn't come out very well, which is eerie as I'll get at if you've read the story. Bram, when he was recovered, and for the, the same age as most of the story, his brother Tom, and then his mom and dad. Let's go into detail about his sister, because they had a very close relationship in life, and she really was an artist, folks. And my wife actually found some artwork of hers. And I took this artwork to, the, to a digitizer, and they digitized it, and I said to the publisher, can you use it? And he goes, heck yeah, we can use it. He put it on the spine of the book. So if you take, would you take the dust jacket off one of those and just hold it up? This is way cool that they put her artwork, a real artist's artwork, on the, on the outside of the book. And she's an artist in the story. And when you look really close at it, it's snakes. So I can't, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's snakes. <laughs> and then my wife went a step further. She likes to check out eBay. She actually found this piece of china on the back, designed and painted by Matilda Stoker, 1870. She found it eBay in France, ordered it, and it's now back in our home in South Carolina. Dr. William, and, and, I, and I believe this was the, really the, the person, the sister was Mina, partly mom, but mostly Matilda. I believe this is Dr. Seward. His oldest brother is featured heavily in our story. He was a knighted doctor. He was also the, whole, the medical um, guy to, to help Bram write the story. This is from chapter one, almost directly. When, in Dracula, when Van Helsing and Seward have to do brain surgery, emergency surgery on Renfield because he got a brain hemorrhage. They didn't do a lot of brain surgery in those days, but Sir William Thornley Stoker did, and this is brain trepidation. So if you remember, Renfield's on the table while the, while the you know, cutting is going on, talking, which was really happened in, in those days. What's also very strange is he, his wife did go insane. Emily Stoker really did go, and she was committed. So when you read the story, you'll see why she is the way she was. Now, this is a controversial guy, and I believe Bram got a certain amount of information about vampires, about Vlad Dracula from two books, which I'll show you in a moment, but also from this guy, Arminius Vanbury who is quite a colorful character, a linguist, a traveler, an expert in the Ottoman Empire, expert in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, and a professor at Budapest University. Later on, it was found when British archives opened up with this Freedom of Information Act that he was a spy for the British against the Russian, Russians. But I have record where they met. Remember I said Bram was the manager of the Lyceum Theater, one of his jobs was the restaurant in the back of the Lyceum Theater. Henry Irving was a very popular actor, and he liked to have dinner parties afterwards, private dinner parties. And back here, 
Bram's job was to invite certain people, dignitaries, special folks, and Bram's job was to seat them all in the right place. Well, Ellen Terry was the love interest of, of Henry Irving and a very famous actress at the time. She had had Edie Terry and Teddy Terry from a previous marriage. Irving left his wife, never remarried, just had the relationship with Ellen Terry. But seated that night was Mrs. Stoker, came to the theater that night. She's seated here next to a visiting dignitary from Hungary called Gurusha, who was the secretary of the prime minister, next to Edie Terry. There's Tom Stoker, Bram's brother, next to this guy, Vanbury, Arminius Vanbury, next to Ellen Terry. And the McMichaels, Mr. McMichael and Mrs. McMichael, were the son and daughter-in-law of the mayor of Philadelphia who were visiting and invited to dinner that night. Love Day was the guy who was the headset designer for the Lyceum Theater, next to Teddy Terry and Bram Stoker himself. At that dinner party, I'm sure, there was some discussion because we know at that date, April 30th, 1890, from Bram's notes that he was just start, starting to write Dracula. And because he was setting it in Austria at this point, we believe that this was the major time when he switched it because of information he got from this guy about, oh, you better go, you should go look up Vlad Dracula. Should check out this because there's a lot of that going on in this part of the world. Austria, Hungary was actually, they controlled Wallachia, Moldavia, and Transylvania. It's one of these little countries sort of off to the side, off the east, they're right on the Black Sea. The Muslim Empire was over here massively powerful, and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire just as powerful, and these little countries right in the middle, always getting just invaded and, and just walked all over. That's, that's why Vlad became the way he was. To prove that point, this, these are some pages from the novel Dracula. This is why I believe Arminius Vanbury was responsible for giving Bram info on Vlad. As Professor Van Helsing explains, I have asked my friend Arminius of Budapest University to make his record, and from all the means they are, he tell me of what he, Dracula, has been. He must indeed have been that Vivoy Dracula, that's Prince, who won his name against the Turk over the great river in the frontier of Turkey land. He goes on down here, the Dracula says Arminius, a great and noble race, though now and again were screams, who were held by their coevals to have dealings with the evil one, the devil. Goes on to explain about the Sholomots, which is down here, um, come on Baker, where, where he learned, the, he, the devil claims the Sholomots amongst the mountains of Lake Hermerstadt. That's Emily Gerard telling him the superstitions where the, the devil learned his dark arts. So on this page, you've got a lot of good proof about where Bram got some of the info. More of it can be found in Marsh's library in Dublin, Ireland, which is where we set part of our book and also where we actually have an interesting record because this man right here, Jason McGilligott, found this pamphlet or this booklet, excuse me, in their library that shows what books Bram Stoker looked at in 1866. <laughs> Libraries are sometimes like that. What's funny, before 1864, the main libraries in Ireland didn't keep these booklets. They let people come in and they stuck them in these cages where they read their books. Nobody's going to steal a book from a cage. <laughs> but one guy stole some books. He stole eight books and he made a big mistake. A couple from Trinity University, Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. He got eight months of hard labor. After that, all the libraries started keeping these little booklets of who was taking out what books. But interestingly enough, that means we can go back and see what was he looking at that day? What was Bram interested in? And funnily enough, it was religious conflict in the world. Remember, he was brought up and raised in Ireland where the Catholics and Protestants are still going at it. 
And back in the days, it was pretty rough for Free Bram, who was a Protestant. And he opened up this book, for whatever reason, a cosmography, which is essentially a forerunner of Encyclopedia Britannica. And folks, 24 years before he got even interested in Dracula, look what was on one page. Dracula, his brother <laughs> Wallatius. And he goes on to talk about the Turks and the fights in the Turkish Empire, Prince of... So this, this is a very interesting find by Megaliot because it predates anything Bram, anybody ever found about Bram and Dracula. Did he start writing Dracula in 1866? No. But it certainly entered into his mind when it came to religious conflict. And that's, that's the whole, what was going on in the area. And I think that also helped influence why Bram set his story there. Now Bram and his, and his wife and young son went off to Whitby in 1890. This is that point where he starts writing the story and changes it over to Transylvania because of being here. There's a library in this little town that I'll tell you about a book in a moment. But this is the actual house Bram stayed in. This is where he had the boarding house for Lucy and me and everybody else. This is the Whitby Abbey. Here's the gravestones where he actually took some of the names to use for his characters. Here's the 199 steps. When the ship came in, the Demeter, and wrecked here, it actually came in as the Dimitri. Bram changed the name to the Demeter, and the black dog jumped off and ran up here. Why did Bram use the black dog? Because Yorkshire already had some good folklore of the Hound of the Baskervilles and the black dog called the Bagasht. Of course, he, what he's setting the tone is that Dracula can change into, into a wolf, into a dog, into a bat, into rats, and so on. So he's using local lore to make it sound real. In fact, that ship that actually wrecked, he found in the accounts of the Coast Guard the actual narrative of this ship wrecking, and he, word for word, he turned that into how the Demeter came in. He sat down on a little bench in part of Whitby and wrote these notes describing the town of Whitby. Again, there's 199 steps. Here's the side of the town Bram was on. Here they are. And funny enough, if you, could, you want to bear with me and try to read his writing, can you see the band played a waltz, Salvation Army? That's the Salvation Arm bandstand right there. It's still there to this day. And in the novel, he, you know, again, placed things. The band was playing this music as they were in the town doing their thing. Now, this is mostly for this point of accuracy, because the Whitby Abbey that I'm about to show you had this tower as part of it. It's, it's a wonderful ruin that was been around since like 500, and it's falling apart. Well, the Germans helped it fall apart because in World War I, the Brits put a listening device up on top. And the Germans didn't like that because that was obviously helping communication. So they came offshore in the British Channel and fired a couple of, couple of bombs and it blew this thing up. But if you've read our novel, uh, or if you do, this is where all the scenes in the tower take place. So that was there at the time. This is what Whitby looks like from a drone photo, and you see the tower, full tower is not there anymore. But more importantly, there's the graveyard, and that is the unconsecrated graveyard. That's where the suicide victims are buried. And that's a, a big thing in kind of vampire superstition. If somebody commits suicide, it's an unholy thing to do. You can't be buried properly, so you can't be buried with the other folks in the consecrated graveyard. So the big scene we have in Whitby, without giving you spoilers, it's right there. Now, remember I told you about that one interview, Jane Starr interview. I'm going to give you a couple little snippets from it. <clears throat> Mrs. Jane Starr asked Bram, 
somewhere like up in here, and I'm going to give you the answer, is where did you get this information from? How did you come up with this whole idea of the vampire? Bram says, it is undoubtedly a very fascinating theme since it touches both on mystery and fact. In the Middle Ages, the terror of the vampire depopulated whole villages. So this thing screams at me, folks, that Bram is talking about truth. That Bram is saying, maybe he doesn't necessarily believe, but he is capitalizing on many people in Europe that did believe. And she goes, well, where did all this happen? He said, in certain parts of Styria. So that's the first thing he answers is, Styria was a province of Austria. But it has survived the longest with most intensity. The legend is common to many countries. China, Iceland, Germany, Saxony, Turkey, the Cherchenese, Russia, Poland, Italy, France, and England, besides all the Tartar communities. Bram was onto something. He did his research and found in the London Library, in the Whitby Library, in Marsh's Library, that the vampire scare was sort of world-renowned. People were believing it. And these were only the countries that he could find. That the terror of the vampire was something he needed to make, make feel real. What was going on at the time, folks, is in the 1700s, with all these plague, excuse me, plagues running through Europe, and people not understanding germ theory and not understanding complete decomposition of the body, they were misinterpreting all this stuff. And superstition was taking over. And so this guy, Dom Augustin Calmet, was sent out by the Benedictines to go and investigate all these horrible desecration of graves. And so he wrote this book right here. Cal May's book in 1751, and unfortunately this whole idea backfired because the church was sending him out. They were the educated ones, along with the military uh, doctors. Go out and find out what's going on and write a report. We've got to stop people from doing stupid things. And he wrote this book, which actually sort of didn't have bestsellers in the day, but close to it, because Cal May began to believe maybe they were onto something himself. And what would happen Here's a perfect example, and you're going to see this in a video clip in a moment. Has anybody in the room heard about these bodies with bricks in the mouth? Because just about six months ago, they found another one. So here's the, here's the short version, and it comes from here by Philip Rohr in 1733. This is old Italian for the chewing dead. Mascatorium moratorium, the chewing dead. In Venice, Italy, there was a plague that killed about 400 people in one month. So they couldn't dig really deep because the water table was very high, and so these 400 people were buried in a very shallow grave. And so the dirt above all these bodies decomposing was not very deep. So the people on the outside were hearing what's kind of gross and get prepared for this because the tendons of the jaw are the toughest, most sinewy tendons, and they decompose the latest. Since they all died about the same time, all these bodies that were in the grave like this, their jaws were coming down around the same time. And so there was this weird crunching noise heard from above. And these folks were convinced that something weird was going on. So they exhume a grave, like this photo right here, but this is a French one, and they go into the grave and see something they'd never seen. This sort of bloated body, kind of rosy cheeks, and around the shroud, this red stuff, which is just, sorry, but biological decomposition juices. But what it looked like was this creature had just had a fresh meal of blood because he's nice and fat, rosy, big cheeks from decomposition, and the red stuff around the mouth. So they would do something like either stake him in the heart or, in the case of these Italians, they'd stuck a brick in his mouth to stop him from chewing his way out. That, that made sense to them. And when you really consider, historically, religion and superstition are both the gatekeepers to the afterlife. Religion has 
a way of controlling society to live well and do the right stuff and you'll have a nice afterlife. Superstition is a little more shady. You know, if you do this right, you do this wrong, you're gonna become a vampire. Otherwise, we'll stick a brick in your mouth or we'll cut your head off and stick it to you. We don't want you coming out of the grave. This is one of the books that Bram found in the London Library. And this, this is very new. It's kind of interesting. You could check this online as well. But a year ago, I was contacted by the guy running the London Library and said, I gotta tell you something. I think we found all of your great-granduncle's books that were listed in the back of the Dracula notes are here in this, li in the, in this library. He was a member here. In the back of the Dracula notes, Bram, like very organized guy, listed all of his books. This guy found all the books. But he said, Dacre, make it more interesting. I think your great-granduncle defaced the books too. <laughs> I said, is that a bad thing? He says, yeah. But it's not that bad because now we can actually say for sure that the London Library was ground zero for Bram's research. So I went over there and I started looking through the books. Now, I'll show you some of these. I don't have time for all of them. This is the, this is the little symbol, the L, the London, London books that they put on their books, that, almost like secret, that if somebody takes it, they know if there's an L, it's one of theirs. But just look at this. Herbert Mayo was a medical doctor, okay? Herbert Mayo wrote a book that has chapter headings Unreal Ghosts, Vampirism, The Divining Rod, Trance, Trance Sleep, Half Walking, Trance. So Bram didn't just dream these things up. He realized these were things written in 1851 that wasn't like way out of nowhere. This is stuff that the medical community were recognizing as real things. So it's like he's now taking vampirism, plus all the stuff that he went through himself in, in uh, Ireland, plus then all those treaties he was finding and confirming it with books by medical doctors. So he took all that info and started writing these traits down along with Emily Gerard. So he was sort of grabbing bits and pieces from many places to create sort of this, you know, this wonder book, this sort of great, you know, almost like a smorgasbord of different places to create the, the best food right here, the best book with all this information from different sources. So again, if you're a vampire fan, you'll, re you'll recognize some of these. You can't read his writing very well, but luckily I could. And, and he's got written down here, influence over rats, painters cannot reproduce him, can see in the dark, no looking glass in the count's house, never can see him reflected in a mirror, no shadow, never eats or drinks, enormous strength, power of getting small or large, money is always old gold, power of creating evil thoughts or banishing good ones in, in others present, could not Kodak him, that's taking pictures, because uh, the Kodak camera just been invented, uh, come out black or like skeleton corpse. This is the whole ESP concept, you know that when there's a blood exchange that the victim and the, the, the donor and the taker are connected like Mina and Dracula with ESP. This is Joseph Mesmer had just kind of, that's a new science at the time, so Bram is taking one of these sciences and sticking it in here when he found this in some of these Transylvanian superstitions. Painters cannot paint him. Looks like someone else. That's Mina. <laughs> and then these traits appear in many other sort of vampire novels. Make matters more exciting, Bram came to America eight times with the Lyceum Theater. One time he came in 1896. He was almost finished writing Dracula. But he found something very interesting. He found that in New England, because of this article in the New York World, they had their own vampire scare. They had tuberculosis. And the signs and symptoms of tuberculosis and the contagious nature of it was very similar to these other plagues. 
As a matter of fact, it was even more realistic because somebody who has TB, they call it the wasting disease, their body kind of just shrivels up, they have these horrible fevers, they cough up blood, and all these people in those days were sleeping, you know, two and three and four people in one little bed, very contagious. So again, if, if one person gets the disease and then finally dies, and the other people in the household begin to shrivel up and they have blood all over them, it, it just all makes sense that the, the person or the spirit is coming out and taking the life from the others. And it's all written right here. Vampires in New England, bodies dug up, their heads, their hearts burned to prevent this curse. So they were taking the hearts out, burning them at the crossroads, and then making like a potion and feeding it to the, the, the living ones that try to keep them alive. And for, for whatever reason, it was working. I don't know if it's like almost little, it's almost like vaccination maybe. Some of that heart of the diseased person is going in and people are bringing antibodies. Nobody really knows, but it was working. And to make it more interesting, this article had Charles Darwin in it. Darwin, who had, who had published Origin of the Species in 1859, another scientist who rocked the Victorian world with his evolution theory, He's talking about when I was in South America, these vampire bats came out of the trees and drank the blood out of the cattle. Bram was very wise. He took that almost word for word and had Quincy Morris say, yes, when I was in South America, this is when Van Helsing was trying to explain to the band of heroes what a vampire was. Morris stands up going, yes, when I was in South America, these, these bats would come out of the trees and one took so much blood out of my favorite mare, I had to put her down which is obviously a very opportunistic exaggeration. They don't take out that much blood, but nonetheless, Darwin found these vampire bats and this article connected the natural and the supernatural all together. Bram to Bram is like pay dirt. This is making his story realistic, believable, this willful suspension of disbelief. I said I'd touch on this, I'm almost done. Anybody in the room read the story Dracula's Guest? Chris, did you ever, never got to it yet? You, got, you have. I figured you would. That's good. And you, she, she's one of, one of the people that work here. Highly recommend you take a look at it. Maybe the library's going to get the, sh the list of short stories. You can get it for free on Gutenberg on, online. But, it, but Bram's widow, he died in 1912. In 1914, uh, he, she, she actually uh, published it and said, a few months before the lamented death of my husband, blah, 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 I have added an Hithro unpublished episode from Dracula. It was originally excised owing to the length of the book and may prove of interest to the many readers of what is considered my husband's most remarkable work, Dracula. So this got J.D. and I really fired up because when we saw this and realized that this had to be part of the 101 missing pages, we go on out to uh, Seattle and we get an invitation by Paul Allen's uh, firm Vulcan Industries to look at this. I, they said, oh, if you're going to come and do this, we'll give you two hours and we want Dacre to give one of his Stoker talks. So I did to all his employees and we got to look at this. And what we were looking for, folks, was stuff crossed out because they didn't have cut and paste in the day. Bram had a typing service type his, his typescript and anything he decided to change, he had to go and cross out. So if you imagine this, if your editor says take out the first 101 pages, you've got to go through the rest of the typescript and figure out what is referring to anything in those excise pages and go through the rest of the, the manuscript. And he did. I found three places where actual events in Dracula's Guest were crossed out, proving to me without any doubt that Dracula's Guest was part of the 101 missing pages. 
So if you're writing a prequel, that's how we, we ended our story at the place, I'm not going to ruin it for you, not even to give you any spoiler hints, ended the place where Dracula's guest took place. This particular one is not one, but I'm going to give it to you. It's a cool little tidbit. I also believe, and I can go on for hours on this, that Bram was not only fixated on Vlad Dracula, but it was the devil. That his creature was the devil. Henry Irving played the role of Mephistopheles for 27 years in front of Bram. That's the devil. This sentence right here is a reference to Mephistopheles. This is the scene where Dracula is having his way with Mina and Jonathan's on the bed, just like Gary Oldman stands up in that suit where the good guys come and try to save him. And this is the scene where Harker would normally have said, before he's taken out, it looked like Mephistopheles rising above Marguerite in the play Faust. So I'm, I'm sure this is why we've done what we've done. This is another cool piece from the TypeScript that I'm going to get very close to the end with. <clears throat> this is where I need audience participation, otherwise we're going to be here for all night. <clears throat> because this is the original ending of Dracula. You probably can't read it from where you are, and I won't expect you to. But until Bram crossed this out, there was a different ending. Now, first of all, let's just go back. Anybody know in the novel now, how did the good guys, the band of heroes, supposedly kill Dracula? What did they use? How did they do it? Anybody know? Excuse me? The Bowie knife and the Kukri blade. Okay, the Bowie knife. Who, did, who used the Bowie knife? Quincy Morris, the American, who was a Texas knife, right? And Jonathan Harker pulled the Kukri blade, which was an Indian blade. And I'm sure he got that because one of his brothers served, two, two brothers actually served in India. So there was a slit of the throat and a Bowie knife. What's wrong with that picture? Doesn't kill him. What kills him? A stake. Earlier in the story, Van Helsing goes into great detail when the good guys had to kill Lucy. You must put in a stake, cut the head off, and put garlic in. So the question is, why at the end of the story, the, the most amazing battle with the alpha vampire, did they use the Bowie knife and just a little slit? People. Of course. <laughs> or he had planned a volcanic eruption. This was a volcanic eruption. So at the count crumbles into dust, and then right here we see this massive volcanic eruption. This is another connection, folks, to the devil. Okay? Bram did his research, and everything that he found in those same books in London Library all about volcanoes were roots to the center of the earth, to hell, where the sulfuric gases are. It all leads to the devil. I am going to tell you this, though, before we go to the next slide. This is Bram Castle. We're telling some of the folks who've been there in the room. What's the connection actually between Dracula and Bram Castle? novel Dracula, is that Bram, in one of those books in the London Library, saw two pictures, two different books, each had their own sketch of Bram Castle. Bram, being the painter, needed to sit here and look at a picture when he was actually describing what Bram Castle looked like. But guess what? He chose to place it 400 miles in the north of the country, and we know that because in his notebook he actually wrote the lines of longitude and latitude and the rivers and the towns, River Sereth, River Bistritza runs in a seraphat fundu between Strasha and Israel at these lines of longitude and latitude. For whatever reason, Bram flipped these around, I think, to hide them. Because when you flip them back, it puts this right where it should be. Right in the Kalamani National Park, right near the Borgo Pass. And I was there a couple weeks ago. 
I was there a year ago with my son, but a couple of weeks ago to place a plaque commemorating this is the exact spot where Bram Stoker put his Castle Dracula. This is, this is what it looked like two years ago. It was kind of a day like this, foggy, you couldn't see too much. And on the way back down, we knew this, and I'm holding you in suspense, but they have an interpretive center. Guess what kind of a mountain this place is, Mount Israel? It's an extinct volcano. So Bram does his homework. He's the detail-oriented guy I've been telling you all night about. If he's going to have a volcanic eruption at the end of the story, even if the editor cut it out, he's going to darn well make sure it's on an old volcano. But it's also a sulfur mine. And we were down in the sulfur mine when we finished our hike and came down to take a look at it because what was burning blue at the very beginning of the, of the story when Jonathan Harker goes up in the carriage? The blue flame. The blue flames are the sulfur that burns that leads to treasure. Guess what's also up in these mountains? Gold. That's unfortunately why the Romans came and invaded. They wanted the Dacian gold, but that's a whole other story. And then there is one more thing. It's like that first slide with all the movie adaptations of Dracula and you know, you, you, you sell your movie rights away and the book disappears and it becomes something totally different. JD and I sold our movie rights away, which was nice, to uh, Paramount Films. But what swayed us was Andy Machete is connected as the director. Anybody see It? Okay, he, he, he did both of the It's and uh, directed both of those. And we feel if, if he can adapt that story quite well, then hopefully he can do a good job with ours. And um, that's it. Hope you enjoyed it. That wraps up our Anoka County Library Northtown event with Dacre Stoker. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Nicola Yoon at Ramsey County Libraries, Roseville. Nicola Yoon is a two-time number one New York Times bestselling novelist and proof positive that YA has a broad appeal behind its target audience. Her two books to date, Everything, Everything, and The Sun is Also a Star, have both been adapted by Hollywood and garnered you a host of high-profile awards. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.